On sacred and scarred land, is the Middle East on the cusp of a surge in violence? The lead from Jerusalem starts live right now. The world on edge, fearing recent violence between Israelis and Palestinians could once again spiral into bloody chaos this hour. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu one-on-one in a CNN exclusive. How Netanyahu plans to address the violence. How he responds to criticism about his newly formed right-wing government. And the actions he might take that could have ramifications worldwide. Plus, new contradictions after the horrific police beating of Tyree Nichols, the initial police report versus what video recordings actually show. And the big announcement today on Capitol Hill from embattled Republican Congressman George Santos, after all the lies. Welcome to the lead on Jake Tapper Live in Jerusalem, where recent violence between Israelis and Palestinians has become the center of international (laughs) geopolitics this week. Just minutes ago, I wrapped an exclusive interview with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who who is back in office for an unprecedented sixth term. I pressed him on his long term plan for any semblance of peace with the Palestinians, his formation of the most hard-right government in Israel's history, and his proposed changes to the Israeli judicial system, changes that critics say could undercut undercut a key part of Israel's democracy. You'll hear some of that exclusive exchange in just a moment, and the full interview will air tonight in a CNN primetime special at 9 p.m. Eastern. This all comes at the end of the bloodiest month in Israel and the West Bank in years. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is on day two of his trip to the region. He met with Netanyahu earlier. He met with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas in the West Bank earlier today, where he pressed for de-escalation. Palestinians and Israelis alike are experiencing uh, growing uh, insecurity, uh, growing fear uh, in their uh, in their homes, in their communities, in their places of worship. We believe it's important to take steps to de-escalate and uh, to try as well to create the foundation for more positive actions going forward. Beyond the borders, Israel is believed to be behind a drone attack on an Iranian military installation, according to the New York Times and Wall Street Journal. That drone attack comes as the U.S., Israel, and other allies fear the Iranian government could be rebuilding its nuclear weapons capabilities. But first, let's bring in Hadass Gold, who's also in Jerusalem with me, of course, because this is her beat. Hadass, how did Secretary Blinken's meeting go with Palestinian leader Abbas today? Well, listen, I don't think we got any sort of major breakthroughs, but I don't think anybody was expecting a major breakthrough through this visit. This visit was about calming things down as much as possible. Nobody nobody was expecting to have Secretary Blinken come up and say, here's my 10-point plan of how we're going to fix everything. Now, we've heard from the Palestinian Authority after the press conference. The Palestinian Authority presidential spokesperson actually was on CNN International a few hours ago, and he said, listen, we were happy to hear him talk about how they want Israel to stop settlement expansion. They want to have Israel stop uh, demolition, stop legalization of what the Americans consider illegal outposts. But they still said that they are not going to go back to security coordinations. This is something that the Palestinian Authority cut off last week uh, in the wake of all of this violence, something that the Americans immediately said they thought was a bad idea. They see this as something that's vital to keep the conversation going, to keep some sense, some tool that they can have to keep the calm. And they said even after all of these meetings, 
you know what, as long as Israel is doing what it's doing, we're not going back to security coordination. Now, Blinken did say that his senior members are staying in the region to continue working. I think that is an important thing to note. And so likely one of their main goals will be before those senior staffers leave is to get that security coordination back on the table. Mm. And Blinken reiterated support today for the two-state solution. Uh, Netanyahu did not say anything, although he was polite. Um, Does anyone believe uh, that the two-state solution is even still on the table or or can even be inched towards? I think that the Americans have to say that they believe in the two-state solution, but even Secretary Blinken himself was acknowledging that the horizon for it was shrinking and not expanding. And he even admitted, he said, you know, we under no illusions that we can very quickly calm the situation. But for them, it's important about the symbolism to show that the Americans are trying to push for this because without the two-state solution, what is there going to be? What is the answer? And for the everyday Palestinian, while they are pleased to hear from the Americans things like more money for the UN agency, 4G, you know, reopening of the consulate, what they really want to hear is how are we going to get a two-state solution? And what the Israelis want to hear is how are we going to get towards a point where the violence has calmed down, where not every day there's something, some new violence. And same for the Palestinians. I mean, that is what Everybody wants on both sides. We haven't yet heard that sort of grand plan. Nobody expects it to happen. But what's really important now is just to calm things down a little bit and hopefully, as President or as Secretary Blinken said, get to the point where they can then start putting those steps in place. But when you look at the political situation in the Palestinian territories, in Israel, I don't see how those two sides can come together anytime soon. You know, Abbas is weaker than ever, and Netanyahu's government is more conservative than ever. Adaskal, thanks so much. Blinken's trip comes after weeks of violence in Israel and in the West Bank. I sat down exclusively with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, where I asked him about his meeting with Secretary Blinken, concerns over plans for more Israeli settlements in the West Bank, and the Biden administration's fears that peace between Israelis and Palestinians will never be possible. Here's a snippet of the interview, which we will run in full at 9 p.m. Eastern. The Jewish people have been here for 3,500 years. Uh, the fact that Jews live here and, uh, and will continue to live here and Palestinians will continue to live here and we're going to have to live together. We're not going to ethnically cleanse uh, the, the heartland of the Jewish people. We're not going to ethnically cleanse Israel. 20% of Israel's population is Arabs. We're not going to say we're not going to have peace until we kick out the Arabs from Israel and we're not going to have peace until we kick out the, uh, the Jews from uh, uh, these areas which are disputed. They're not illegal. They're disputed areas and... Uh, the only way to resolve that dispute is from to have peace negotiations with the Palestinians consistently refuse to enter. Now, I think we can get hung up on this, and we have in the past. People said, you know, unless you resolve this issue and unless you have peace with the Palestinians, you're not going to have a broader peace with the Arab world. So for 25 years, the Palestinians who don't want peace with Israel want to see a peace without Israel, who don't want a state next to Israel but a state instead of Israel, they had an effective veto on Israel's expansion of the peace, circle of peace around it. I went around them. I went directly to the Arab states uh, and forged uh, with a new concept of uh, peace for peace, mm-hmm. peace uh, through strength. I forged four historic peace agreements. The Abraham Accords. The Abraham Accords, which is twice the number of peace agreements that all my predecessors in 70 years got combined. Well, let me ask you about it, because I know you're so committed to the Abraham Accords, which are a, a huge achievement um, by President Trump and, and, and by you. Um, and I know you want to keep going. Mm. What happens when, let's say, the big prize is, I mean, I know Sudan's on the table, some of these Southeastern Asian countries are on the table, but the big, the big prize is Saudi Arabia, obviously. What happens when 
Saudi Arabia gets the U.S. to go along with some of the things that they want from the U.S. in terms of security measures. But they say, look, Mr. Netanyahu, they probably call you Bibi, um, I need something uh, for the Palestinians in order to go along with this. I can't just do this around the Palestinians. That's important to me and to my constituency. What are you willing to give? Are you willing to let people in the West Bank vote? Are you willing to let uh, the 300,000 Arabs who have residency in East Jerusalem vote? Well, I'm certainly willing to have them have all the powers that they need to govern themselves, but none of the powers that can threaten us. And this means that Israel should have the overriding security responsibility because every time we moved out, say from Lebanon, uh, basically Iran came in with its proxy Hezbollah. We moved out of Gaza. Uh, another radical Islamist, uh, the, the Hamas took over. And if we just walk away, as people suggest, uh, then you'll have Hamas and Iran move into the hills around Jerusalem, overlooking Tel Aviv. That's so I, I think there's there's a formula for peace. But my view is because of the the fact that the the continuing, the persistent Palestinian refusal, which goes back a century, to recognize a Jewish state, a nation state for the Jewish people in any boundary, that persistent refusal persists. If we wait for them, we're not going to have peace. People have said you have to work your way outside in, first inside out, first peace with the Palestinians, peace with the Arab world. I think realistically it's going to be the other way around. But are you- If we make peace with Saudi Arabia, it depends on the Saudi leadership, and bring effectively the Arab-Israeli conflict to an end, I think we'll circle back to the Palestinians and get a workable peace with the Palestinians. I think that's possible, and I think that's the way to go. All right, we have just lost the signal with our Jake Tapper in Jerusalem. We will be working on getting him back momentarily. Uh, this uh, interview with uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was wide-ranging. Uh, you will see a fuller Uh, version of that interview tonight in a primetime special at 9 p.m. Eastern time right here on CNN. We'll be right back. We are back live from Jerusalem. And moments ago, you saw just a clip, an excerpt of my exclusive interview with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, which will air in full at 9 p.m. Eastern this evening. Joining us now to discuss is Yaakov Katz. He is the editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem uh, Post. Thanks so much for being here. Really good to have you. So I I asked uh, Netanyahu about whether peace was possible between Israelis and Palestinians after this period of heightened violence. He's pretty seems pretty committed against any sort of two-state solution right. under no uncertain terms, even though that had been the state. I mean, he hasn't been talking about two-state solution in years, but at one point, every every Palis- I mean, uh, Palestinian and Israeli politician talked about it. Now it just seems to be off the table. He even threw his own support behind it. Remember, there were speeches that he gave back during the Obama administration who was under pressure, and he's endorsed a two-state solution. This government that he's currently in is the most farthest right and conservative government that Israel has ever had. No one in this government wants a two-state solution. No one wants to see a Palestinian state. And Netanyahu, who might understand that when faced with the dilemma of do I want a one state that gives all of these Palestinian Arabs millions in the West Bank, we would, unless we wanted apartheid, which hopefully we wouldn't want, but right. we would give them citizenship and equal rights and the ability to vote. And the whole demography in this country would completely alter the Jewish majority of the state of Israel and this Jewish homeland would be at risk. I would bet that he would want a two-state solution. He would prefer to give them independence, but he can't right now. His hands are tied with the partners that he has gone into bed with in this coalition, they will never let something like this happen. So one of the other things we talked about, and again, uh, we'll air the whole interview at 9 p.m. Eastern uh, this evening, is um, 
the his his desire to he he, want, he says he's working out in from the outside right. in meaning I'm making peace with UAE and Bahrain and Morocco and blah 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 and like hopefully I'll have the entire Arab world uh, allied and with normalization of relations uh, with Israel at some point at that point the Palestinians will have to agree. Do you think there's some part of him that thinks, and maybe the Saudis or the Jordanians can be in charge of making sure there are no terrorist attacks on us? I mean, do you think that's his view? Or I, I don't think his view is that we would, we would outsource Israeli security, right? His whole thing is that Israel needs to retain its own security. It needs to be able to go into these places and fight where it needs to to stop terrorist attacks. But I think what he does believe is exactly what you said, Jake, is that he goes to the Saudis, he goes to the Omanis, he gets all other countries to come to the table, normalize relations like we saw with the Abraham Accords, with the UAE, with the Bahrainis, uh, with Morocco, for example. He thinks that if he can get the Saudis, maybe that would get the Palestinians. The one thing that people would push back on on that is that the Abraham Accords were about two and a half years ago, right? right. Has anything changed with the Palestinians? No, it's no. only gotten worse. So if we thought that we presented them with the vision of how normalization can look, and then that would do something, and they would see, oh, there's actually benefit to a diplomatic resolution with the state of Israel. That hasn't happened. So will it happen in another year? Will the Saudis make that difference? I don't know. But we do have to have some sort of engagement with the Palestinians, and currently this government is not going to be the government that's going to be able to do that. The other thing that's so interesting, and we talked about some of the extremists in his government. I mean, real, like one of, the, one of your ministers, Ben Gavir, uh, had a picture of... Baruch Goldstein, for people who don't know that, that's an yes. Israeli terrorist who killed a whole bunch of Palestinians who were praying decades ago. And he had a picture of Baruch Goldstein in his living room. Right. And then before he ran for office, he took it down. He took it down. I mean, th- that's the kind of people that he, these people make Bibi. This guy is in charge of our police force right, right now. He's the police minister. Right. But these people make Bibi look liberal. Bibi is the most left wing member of his coalition. I know that's hard for people to understand, right? Because people tend to look at Netanyahu as being this hawk right-wing conservative leader. You can argue he's the most conservative prime minister in the history of Israel. He might be, but he's, he's also very pragmatic. If you look throughout his 15 years as being prime minister, he's always been, he's hesitant and cautious. He's not quick to use military force. He's not quick to make big decisions. When we talk now about, for example, Secretary of State Blinken warned against Israeli annexation. Netanyahu in previous governments could have done this a number of times, but he always refused to because he didn't want to go in that direction. So he's in a tough spot right now because he has no one else to the left of him. And I think that actually who's to the left of him? It's the United States. He's right. hoping Blinken plays an important role here because he can then go to Ben Gvir and these other guys and say, look, you heard what Blinken said. I can't do what you want on annexation. I can't do what you want on illegal outposts. I can't give you all these different things. So I got the Americans and we need America. But his argument, uh, and again, uh, you can see the whole interview tonight, but, but his argument is when I bring up these extremists, it's like, and you've heard this a million times, I'm the one with my hands on the wheel. Right. I'm the one with my hands on the wheel. Um, basically saying that if it comes down to it, he will overrule uh, his cabinet ministers. How, how practical is that uh, when something is actually going on and the... Uh, Israeli, you know, domestic police force is out doing their thing, or one of the other extremists is going to be running administration in the West Bank. Right. Um, how practical is that? It's not so practical. I mean, you could say his hands are on the wheel, but at the end of the day, as you know, we're a coalition system, right? This is a parliamentary system. He's got 64 seats right now as a majority. That's just three, four over what you would need to retain and not go to a new election. So if he doesn't give these guys what they want, and, and they're coming with clear ideology, 
They have desires. They want to see their policies and their visions. Anti-Arab ideology in some cases. Well, it, it's, 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 I don't know if we, I would say anti-Arab, but it's, it's more to expand the settlements, to expand Israel's control over the West Bank. That is against, of course, what the Palestinians want. And therefore, if he doesn't give them that, they could always bring down his government. And, and that's the last thing he wants, especially now when he's on trial. He's facing a court hearing. He's he's under indictment for three different charges, bribery, fraud, and breach of trust. Yeah. He needs this coalition. He wants to stay prime minister. Yaakov Katz, thanks so much. Great to have you here. Really, you, really appreciate it. You can see more of my exclusive interview with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu this evening. It will air in its entirety at 9 p.m. Eastern, only here on CNN. Turning to our national lead now, more fallout from the death of 29-year-old Tyree Nichols in Memphis, Tennessee, including the revelation of information in the initial police report that is quite at odds with what you can actually see on the videos. This comes after the firing of three Memphis EMTs for their response to the fatal police beating of Nichols. And now another officer has been put on leave, making that at least two who have been relieved of their duties just this week. Here's CNN's Nick Valencia. Hey, he took our running, so I seen a, white a bundle of contradictions between what the world witnessed in the video showing police beating Tyree Nichols and what's reportedly found in the initial police report about the incident. First reported by the New York Times, a photo of a police report was posted online by a Memphis talk show host. The district attorney's office tells CNN the DA does have a report that has that same account of events. The report suggests Nichols was pulled over after police say he veered into oncoming traffic. It says he was violent, sweating profusely and irate when he exited the vehicle and, quote, started to fight with officers at one point, grabbing one of the detectives gun. Things not seen in the body camera and Sky Cop street camera videos, but the very things officers talked about during the encounter. The report also says Nichols was struck with a department-issued baton while given verbal commands to stop resisting. It notes nothing about the multiple times officers kicked him while he was lying on the ground. The Memphis Police Department still hasn't officially released a report all these weeks later. The Shelby County Sheriff's Office, also listed in that report image posted online, releasing a statement saying the release of reports in connection with the investigation is unauthorized and the Sheriff's Office cannot comment. This uh, issue of leaving police reports on their face uh, as they're immediately released is something we also need to reconsider. Officials announced more firings and disciplinary actions against public servants at the scene. In addition to the firings of the five black Memphis police officers now facing second-degree murder charges, three Memphis Fire Department personnel have been let go, and two sheriff's deputies have been put on leave, along with the two additional Memphis Police Department officers also on leave. We are looking at everybody who had any kind of involvement in this incident. Everybody who was on that scene who contributed in any way should be held fully accountable. As Tyree Nichols' family prepares to say their final goodbyes tomorrow. My brother was an innocent person. My Everybody knows that my brother was filled with energy. He was like the light of the room. And today we're learning that the vice president will be in attendance at Tyree Nichols' funeral on Wednesday. She will join other senior level officials from the Biden administration. Jake. 
Nick Valencia, thanks so much. Coming up next, the big meeting without specifics spelled out, the commitments the White House is pushing for today before Speaker McCarthy arrives for talks with President Biden at the White House tomorrow. Plus, we now have never-before-seen video of former President Donald Trump being deposed by the New York Attorney General's office. You can hear it for yourself. That's coming up. Topping our politics lead today, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Biden are publicly sparring ahead of their big meeting tomorrow about the debt ceiling and spending cuts. McCarthy says Biden's unwillingness to negotiate is, quote, irresponsible, while Biden's top economic advisors are are accusing McCarthy of being an outlier when it comes to Republican speakers and having no budget plan to speak of. Let's go to CNN's chief White House correspondent, Phil Mattingly. Phil, does Biden have a plan to try to win over McCarthy? You know, Jake, it's a high-stakes meeting with rather low expectations heading into it, and win over might be pretty aspirational at this point. And White House officials acknowledge that. They're setting the bar a little bit lower, saying the president's really going to detail two things that he wants from the new Speaker of the House. The first is a commitment that he will not engage in any back and forth as it relates to the debt ceiling, basically not negotiating, just wanting a clean debt ceiling increase. And the second is that House Republicans will introduce their own budget proposal. Now, McCarthy has made very clear that first ask of the president is something he will not accede to, he will not agree to. So that, at least at this point, is off the table. The budget, of course, is still an open question as House Republicans still get in order with their new majority. But I think what this meeting underscores is just how far apart these two sides are and just how little room there is at this point in time to see a path forward. Now, keep in mind, Jake, there are several months before they reach that June deadline when the debt ceiling is expected to be breached. However, when you look at how the battle lines are more or less being drawn at this point in time, it is very clear that White House officials show no signs of moving off their current position of no negotiations. And House Republicans, though they haven't coalesced around a single proposal or a single thing to put on the table, are also making clear they are not going to agree to any clean debt ceiling increase. How that plays out over the course of the next couple of months remains an open question. This meeting will be a critical first step in that process, one that will be driven mostly by political positioning and posturing, and also by the idea that, as the president says, he's not willing to negotiate, Jake. Phil Mattingly at the White House, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss Utah Republican Congressman Chris Stewart, who serves on the House Intelligence Committee and the House Appropriations uh, Committee. Uh, Congressman Stewart, thanks so much for joining us. So President Biden has said he is not going to negotiate on this period. Speaker McCarthy says he's not going to play, quote, political games. Raising the debt ceiling on a, on a bipartisan basis has been happening for decades, as I don't need to tell you. In fact, under, under Trump, A majority of House Republicans voted to raise the debt ceiling two out of three times. Why this year for Republicans to take the stand this year when we're teetering maybe on a on a recession and and people worry that we're that this action, you know, defaulting could bring about an uh, economic apocalypse? Well, uh, Jake, it's just not this year that Republicans have taken the stand. I mean, we've used this opportunity of increasing the debt ceiling limit to negotiate and to get some concessions on spending many, many times in the past. And honestly, Jake, I can't imagine the president saying and then having to defend to the American people, I'm not even going to talk about it. I'm not going to negotiate a single dollar. And, And to remember or to remind the American people, a little more than 10 years ago when there was negotiations between the Obama administration and Speaker Boehner at the time, 
it was President, Vice President Biden who was responsible for those negotiations. In fact, we even called them the Biden negotiations. So this is something he's done in the past, something he's advocated for in the past. We're just asking, we've spent 10, I'm sorry, 12 trillion dollars in the last two years. Are you telling us there's not a single dollar that we can negotiate over and, and some spending cuts? Of course there are. So I think this is an opening salvo. It's not where they're going to end up. The president is going to have to negotiate with us and hopefully uh, we, we get to some concessions that we can say to the American people, yeah, we're trying to be fiscally responsible. Yeah. No, you, but you're kind of proving my point because you just talked about how you did use the situation to force spending cuts and a discussion on it. Uh, during the Obama years, but I believe about a quarter of the current national debt was rung up during the Trump years. And I guess my question is, why not take the stand then when you had a guy from your own party in the White House? Yeah, and I actually advocated at the time we did have President Trump in the White House, and we should be initiating some spending cuts. And honestly, I mean, the former president just wasn't interested in that. And it's one of the things that frustrated some of us who were fiscal conservatives. He was a leveraged New York businessman. To him, de debt wasn't a, a problem. It was a feature. And uh, I'm disappointed that we had the spending that we did under the former president. But that doesn't abrogate the responsibility I have now in the position we have to once again try to advocate for some spending cuts and for uh, fiscal responsibility. Once again, Jake, $12 trillion in two years we can find some places we could be more, more fiscally responsible to the American people and to our children. So one of the things Biden is saying is, I'll show you my budget, you show me your budget. Where is the Republican budget? Um, do you know which programs under a House Republican budget would face uh, spending cuts when, when that budget is finalized? Well, I think a lot of things are going to be on the table. I think there's some that the speaker has made clear, and that is we're not going to try to do any reforms in Social Security and Medicaid or Medicare. So it'll be the discretionary side. Uh, and it's going to take a little time, as you said in your introduction. I mean, we're just barely organizing our committees. That, once again, will take a little time, probably several months before we have a budget, and probably about the same amount of time before the president has a budget. And, but one thing I worry about, Jake, is it worries me that we get to June when these supposed extraordinary measures run out. We should be working with urgency now. We shouldn't wait till we're right up to the deadline because then you have this countdown the clock to default. It adds all sorts of pressures that make the negotiations, I think, less productive during those times. We should be doing this with urgency now and take the threat of default off the table completely by finishing this early. Right. I don't disagree. So so here's the question, because I remember asking Congressman Chip Roy about this right after McCarthy was elected speaker. Like, you know, this is coming down the pike. And after this one is over, there'll be another one. Why don't you on the Appropriations Committee and some of the other House Republicans that want to spend more within the means of the U.S. government, go find some Democrats in the Senate, go find some people in the White House Council, you know, the Council on uh, Economic Advisors or whatever, and actually start working on some sort of plan that everybody can get behind uh, instead of these public showdowns, you know? Yeah, well, no doubt about it. And they do become public because they're, they're so critical that we have success. I mean, a default on the U.S. debt would be an enormous consequence. I mean, that would be something that everyone was aware of. So by that fact, they're kind of driven to the public. 
But there are negotiations like this taking place. There are the kind of conversations that you suggested. Now, I got to tell you, some of them are between just little old guys like me, you know, just a congressman from Utah. Those are helpful. But it has to be among our leaders. It has to be between the speaker and the president. Those two are the keys to making this thing and bringing it to a conclusion. Uh, Before you go, sir, I want to ask you about this new uh, legislation you're set to introduce. It would ban kids under the age of 13 from using social media platforms. Uh, You cite this growing evidence of the link between kids using those apps uh, and the negative effect on children's mental health. Um, I I don't know if it would be constitutional. What's your plan to break through the the powerful big tech industry to get this passed? Oh, yeah. I mean, we're going to have opposition to this, uh, no doubt. And and your your comment about constitutionality, we think we've written in such a way that it is. And, uh, and of course, I want it to be. But, oh, my gosh, Jake, if you're a parent of young children now and you see the rise in anxiety and depression, where nearly 40% of kids between age 14 and 24 are clinically diagnosed with anxiety and depression, and you have something like the high 20s who have contemplated suicide, and we know that there's a direct correlation between social media engagement when the average 13-year-old in the United States spends nine hours a day on social media. Oh my gosh, we protect our kids from drinking and from smoking. We don't let them have a driver's license till they're 16. Can't we protect 9, 10, 11, 12, 13-year-olds from having their minds wired with this, what the you know, Chinese developed with TikTok, which is just emotional uh, heroin? And we know that it is. So, and, and this is bipartisan as well. The, the White House has been speaking on this recently. The Surgeon General spoke on it just today. We think there's bipartisan effort that can be made here. All right, Republican Congressman from Utah, Chris Stewart, thank you so much for your time today. Good to see you again. Thank you, sir. Next, a cross-examination today in the murder trial for Alex Murdoch that raises new questions about the weapon used to kill his wife and son. The time received. International lead, another busy day of witness testimonies in day five of the double murder trial of disgraced former attorney Alex Murdoch, including a cross-examination of a special agent who interviewed Murdoch three days after the murders of Paul and Margaret Murdoch. Uh, CNN's Randy Kay was inside the courtroom today in Waterboro, South Carolina. Randy, what did this special agent say? Jake, we learned a lot from this special agent. He said that none of the weapons that were seized from the Murdoch home were the gun that was used to kill Paul Murdoch, his son. None of the ammunition matched either. And that same witness also testified that he wasn't sure if the murder weapons were even ever recovered. Here's some of that exchange. In fact, none of the shotguns that you brought yesterday, according to the ballistic report, your lab analysis, fired the shots that killed Paul. Correct? I do not have the lab report in front of me. Have you ever found the murder weapons? Not that I'm aware of, sir. Are you aware, sir, that the shot that blew Paul Murdoch's head off was Winchester, dry lock, steel, waterfowl, 12-gauge ammunition? And you didn't find any similar ammunition that Moselle on June the 8th or any time after that, correct? I did not, sir. 
And Jake, there was a whole lot of talk in court about this interview that Alec Murdoch did with investigators back on June 10th of 2021, a few days after the murders. In that interview, this witness said that he heard Alec Murdoch say about his son, Paul, I did him so bad. But the defense says that he actually said they did him so bad. Uh, the witness was basically saying it sounded to him like a confession, but he wanted to follow up on that. He wanted more information. So they replayed that clip of that interview, Jake, in court. They slowed it down by a third for that witness, hoping that he would change his mind. He stuck with it. He said again, I hear I did him so bad. They decided that they'll let the jury decide what he really said, Jake. And what more do we know about this two shooters theory? This is something that the defense put forward. They floated it out there uh, in court. Uh, they're trying to establish that Alec Murdoch could not have done this because uh, Maggie Murdoch was killed with a rifle and Paul Murdoch was killed with a shotgun. So how could it just be Alec Murdoch using both of those weapons? Uh, they also, as you know, didn't recover the murder weapons, so it's hard to say. But uh, we know from the defense that they are trying to put this uh, theory out there, maybe uh, float the idea that there was somebody who came in, maybe there was a lookout, somebody else was involved. Uh, but of course, uh, the prosecution is not buying that, Jake. All right, Randy Kay in, in Water, Walterboro, South Carolina. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Turning now to a, a bizarre story out of a zoo in Dallas. Is it monkey business or something more nefarious? The zoo says two emperor tamarind monkeys were stolen Monday after their habitat was intentionally compromised. And this is just the latest incident that has happened at the zoo since January 13th. CNN's Rosa Flores is following this. Rosa, help us understand the suspicious activity and the potential crimes that may have been committed here. No, you're absolutely right. These could be potential crimes, and there's been four since mid-January. The latest one that you mentioned, the disappearance of those two emperor tamarind monkeys that happened yesterday, and police say that their enclosure was compromised. And then there's a the case of the clouded leopard named Nova. Now, Nova is considered a vulnerable animal because there's only 10,000 of them left in Southeast Asia. Now, in that case, the animal went missing, the zoo was shut down, Nova was found, but police also found that her um, enclosure had been compromised. They do think that it's intentional. And on that same day, there was another case, another enclosure where monkeys were being kept, specifically a, a, a breed named Langer. Those monkeys were also compromised, but they stayed in their enclosure. Um, their enclosure was compromised, but they didn't go anywhere. And then finally, there's the death of a 35-year-old endangered vulture named Pin. Vulture died. The enclosure was also cut, so very similar circumstances. Police say that the cause and manner of death has not been determined, but they are investigating. And according to the zoo, the pin did not die from natural causes, uh, Jake. And so uh, there's a lot of, of things circulating in the, at the Dallas Zoo right now. They're trying to figure out exactly what happened. Jake. All right, Rosa Flores, thank you so much. Coming up next, Trump on tape, the deposition video released today revealing why the former president said he'd be a, quote, absolute fool not to plead the fifth. Stay with us. In our politics lead, newly released video from the deposition last August of former President Donald Trump as a part of the New York Attorney General's civil investigation into fraudulent practices at the Trump Organization. CNN's Kara Scannell is following the story for us. Kara, what does the video show? 
Well, Jake, we've got a 38-minute portion of this deposition that Trump gave to the New York Attorney General's office in August. This was part of the civil investigation that ended in a civil lawsuit that was filed just one month later. Now, in this deposition, the portion that we've seen, it's the start of this interview where Attorney General James is there introducing Trump. It's a tight shot, as you can see there, of just the former president. And as you know, he has famously said that only mobsters take the fifth and innocent people don't use their Fifth Amendment rights against um, self-protection. Well, in this deposition, Trump does assert the Fifth Amendment, and here's the reason why he said he did. Take a listen. Anyone in my position not taking the Fifth Amendment would be a fool, an absolute fool. One statement or answer that is ever so slightly off, just ever so slightly, by accident, by mistake, such as it was a sunny, beautiful day when actually it was slightly overcast, would be met by law enforcement. And now the former president had said time and again, same answer, same answer when he was asked more than 400 questions by the lawyers for the New York Attorney General's office. Now, she did sue him for $250 million. Trump has called that lawsuit and the investigation a witch hunt. Jake. So this is just a portion of the hours-long deposition. Are we going to be able to see the rest of it? So the reason why we've got this portion is because the attorney general's office had put into the court record just this piece of the testimony to get on record the former president asserting the Fifth Amendment. Now, we have put in a FOIA request asking for the full deposition to be made public to us so we can see it, so we can see the questions that her lawyers asked him, and we'll see him repeatedly asserting his Fifth Amendment to not answer those questions. Jake? All right, Kara Scannell in New York, thanks. Coming up on The Lead, live from Jerusalem, the recent violence between Palestinians and Israelis and the message delivered by Secretary of State Antony Blinken in the West Bank today. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, live from Jerusalem. In this hour, formal charges in the deadly Rust movie set shooting. What court documents filed just moments ago Reveal about Hollywood star Alec Baldwin, plus new vote counting that puts Speaker McCarthy's plans in jeopardy, this time as he tries to take Democratic Congresswoman Ilhan Omar off the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And leading this hour, we're live from Jerusalem after my exclusive conversation with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. The interview came only hours after U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken visited the West Bank and reacted to days of deadly bloodshed in this region, Blinken met with Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas, urging a de-escalation in violence between Israelis and Palestinians. CNN's Nick Robertson was also in the West Bank, where some Palestinians fear Blinken's calls for peace may amount to nothing but words. Weather matching the mood in the West Bank, gloomy. A rain-drenched Ramallah, venue for Secretary of State Antony Blinken's meeting with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. Expectations steeped in past disappointments. I'm 40 years old. I've seen it all before, this coffee vendor tells us. Many leaders here come and go, and the situation remains the same. His neighbor running the nearby nut store, even more downbeat. It's from bad to worse, he tells us. Someone who is against our cause, what can we expect from him? 
Even experts in the art of diplomacy here see irony in Blinken's visit that ultimately weakens their leaders. It only enhances the Palestinian people's lack of trust. And of course, it turns people towards individual actions, reacting to the occupation by saying, we will defend ourselves, we will resist. Inside the meeting, not an easy dynamic. Blinken wanting what Abbas can ill afford to give, improved cooperation with Israel, absent concessions. Abbas wanting what Blinken can't give either, parity of US support with Israel. Saying our people will not accept a continuation of the occupation forever. Blinken offering a small bump in aid, help with a legacy phone network and a warning for Israelis and Palestinians not to threaten the possibility of a two-state solution. We oppose any action by either side that makes that goal more difficult to achieve, more distant. And we've been clear that this includes things like settlement expansion and, of course, uh, incitement uh, and acquiescence to, to violence. Stronger words than many expected, but here actions speak loudest. The fact is Israel has destroyed the two-state solution. Israel is making sure that there is no viable sovereign Palestinian state. By expanding settlements? Expanding settlements, stealing more land. For the young, Blinken's diplomacy, a double whammy. No faith in their own leadership and no hope Blinken can deliver. Our leadership is incapable of delivering what we want, 18-year-old Nihad tells us. I don't see a two-state solution, he says. Maybe between us and the Jewish people, but with the Israeli occupiers, never. Nick Robertson is here in studio uh, with me. And Nick Robertson, what was your takeaway from being there? Yeah, I think the big takeaway is the lack of credibility that Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian Authority president, has. One of the reasons is because uh, Israeli troops are able to come into the West Bank and Palestinian citizens are getting killed. So that undermines his ability to stand up for the Palestinians and say, hey, I can take care of your security. What does that look like? That looks like Palestinian gunmen coming outside synagogues and killing people here. But I think underneath that, it's important to understand the terror groups in the West Bank, Islamic Jihad and Hamas, are purposely going after his credibility, Abbas's credibility. How do they do that? Because they, they do things that tempt the Israeli troops deeper and deeper into the West Bank. You'll notice that Gaza has been pretty calm. They're keeping a lid on that. They're drawing Israeli troops into the West Bank, which allows situations to develop where Palestinians get killed. That inflames the situation, undermines Mahmoud Abbas. That's, that's the game for them. Pretty, pretty devious. Uh, Nick, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Let's bring in CNN's Kylie Atwood at the State Department for us now. And Kylie, Nick uh, just referred to the U.S. pushing this two-state solution uh, as something from yesteryear. Uh, the U.S. talks about it, but, you know, it's been talked about for decades and it's gone nowhere and Netanyahu is no longer advocating for it, even though he once uh, did. But is this the only stance of, that Secretary Blinken thinks he can take? At this point, yes. And he made that pretty clear today. And when you talk to U.S. officials, their rationale is because they don't believe there's an alternative that would uh, make Israel a Jewish state and also a democracy and would also give 
equal rights to Palestinians. But realistically speaking, Jake, this administration simply has not prioritized the Israeli-Palestinian issue in terms of what their focus has been on the foreign policy front. And so I think that it's key to consider that they haven't really had fresh ideas to put on the table because they've been focused on other issues overseas. Blinken did not call for new peace talks in his meetings in the region, uh, even though he met with Netanyahu and he met with Abbas. Is this something the State Department thinks is basically uh, not even worth raising publicly? I think they believe it's a not right now issue because uh, you spoke about the fact that you have Netanyahu back there, prime minister again for a sixth time, not endorsing a two-state solution. You have a boss who has been the president of the PLO for more than 15 years. These are just not leaders who are showing a willingness to work together and haven't historically. So they don't believe that that is a great starting point. And I also think that when it comes to this cycle of violence that we have seen over the last week or so uh, in Israel and in Palestine, you also have the Secretary of State really honing in on the fact that they need to de-escalate things before they can go anywhere. He used the term today, one step at a time. And it's very clear that he's leaving officials behind in the country to try and uh, work on things that they can progress forward in terms of small steps. Again, focused on small things, not a bigger solution at this time. Jake. All right, Kylie Atwood at the State Department. Thanks so much. Let's bring in Democratic Congressman Gregory Meeks of New York. He is the former chairman and current ranking Democrat on the Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, Congressman, good to see you. So you just heard Kylie Atwood discuss that the U.S. is still pushing the two-state solution despite no signs of any progress and, and no endorsement of it from the Israeli prime minister. Is the two-state solution now an unrealistic goal for the U.S. to have? Is it Does it undermine our own impotence to keep pushing for something that Netanyahu is pretty clearly not on the, not on the program for. Now, I think that is much needed and very important to say that we have to have a two-state solution. Uh, to not to have one is not good for Israel, not good for the United States, not good for the Palestinians. You know, if you talk about uh, a one-state solution, then you're talking about having six million Palestinians uh, in, in, in Israel. Uh, where they may not have the equal rights. So we need to make sure that there is a two-state solution. Uh, we need to be strong on that uh, with all parties. Uh, and there's me and mechanisms that we've got to try to get there by having uh, the dialogue and conversation that I think that Secretary Blinken was talking about and de-escalating. That's what has to happen right now, the de-escalation of violence. Too much violence is going on right now. We saw the Palestinian terrorists killing uh, a number of uh, Jews in synagogue. And then we see the increased violence uh, in the settlements uh, to the Palestinians. That tension must be reduced, and it has to be reduced immediately. You know, we met today with King Abdullah uh, of Jordan, and he said that, you know, we need to reduce it before Ramadan, uh, and, so, and that we should do so in a collective way. So I think that the focus first is reduce the tensions that currently exist and then push forward so that we can again start talking about the whereabouts of a two-state solution. And we know that means, you know, telling the Palestinians uh, that they have to have a coordinated uh, effort to keep peace and to stop, you know, a Palestinian terrorists from coming over, as well as telling uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu that they've got to stop the settlements uh, what have taken place in the expansion, what prevents a two-state solution from occurring. So Netanyahu's new government was formed uh, with uh, members of two parties that are to the right of Netanyahu. 
uh, a couple of the ministers in his cabinet uh, are have some really controversial actions uh, and statements in the past, not even that far in the past. Um, even some of uh, Israel's most staunch supporters, such as former U.S. ambassador to Israel, Martin in- Indyk, said, quote, the more things get out of hand in the West Bank, either from settlement activity or from violence, the more pressure from the progressive wing of the Democratic Party on President Joe Biden will grow while he will resist it because he's fundamentally pro-Israel. Nevertheless, he cannot ignore it. Do you think that there are going to be some serious fractures in the U.S.-Israel friendship because of this new far-right Netanyahu government? Here's what I know. The United States Congress will stand strong in supporting the security of Israel. The memorandum of understanding that we have is unequivocal. And we will stand with Israel and its security, you know, that we understand the regions, whether you're talking about what's taking place in Syria, what's taking place in Lebanon, what's taking place with Iran. So we've got to make sure that we, and that, that will not break. That's not going to tatter. That's going to stand strong. At the same time, I do have concerns about people uh, in the Netanyahu government who are to the extreme also. And I think that uh, that is something that we have to speak up about. And, 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 and I have surely a lot of disagreements with what they said. So uh, just as you know, there's differences of opinion on different leaders, we are strongly, the United States Congress is strongly for the security of Israel and, and want uh, to develop an economic strategy to give the people of Palestine some hope. And I think that here's where the members of the uh, Abraham Accords become really important because then we can talk about a collective coming together so that the young men and, and women that you showed on your report can have a sense of hope in Palestine. Uh, you know, and I visited there and I've talked to them as well as talking to young people in Israel. And that's what they want. They want a sense of hope and then a chance of living together side by side in peace. That's what the Abraham Accords about. And I think that we can do that and coordinate that with some of the other Arab countries that are part of it. The U.S. provides nearly $4 billion in aid to Israel each year as part of a a long-term agreement President Obama made. U.S. aid has, of course, helped Israel develop uh, as one of the most advanced uh, economies and militaries in the world. Um, Are you at all concerned uh, about how that funding could be used uh, by this new, more conservative Netanyahu government? Jake, I am not concerned uh, yet. That's why I think that there has to be the dialogue. That's why I'm glad that uh, Secretary Blinken happens to be there at the right time. I think there has to be that continued conversation. Uh, But the United States will stand by. You know, look, the Middle East is a region that is uh, very dangerous. And because of the other countries that I've talked about, we know the threat from Iran. We know the threat from, you know, Syria. We know what a, a, uh, a Lebanon that becomes a failed state, what that would mean. And so therefore we have to make sure that the people of Israel is safe. That's unequivocal. And the United States Congress will stand by that. The people of Israel must be safe. And that's why there will be no separation therein. And if we see somebody crossing the line, then we will have to stand up and say, this is not tolerable. I mean, this is what we've got to do. That's why I've said that it's got to be on both sides. It's got to be, you know, a way that, for example, the United States has programs that are on the ground now 
of which we need to do, move further so that we can talk about diplomacy a little bit more, reduce tension, and get compromise. Uh, and I think bringing the sides together. In fact, uh, King uh, Abdullah said uh, there should be some kind of way, a summit, if you will, of all of the Abraham Accords and individual Arab states in Israel. Uh, unfortunately, on the Palestinian side, as you have indicated on this show, the head of the Palestinian Authority is very weak. Uh, and, uh, and so there's a problem there on that side because of the weakness of the leadership of the, of the, of the Palestinians. But yeah. right now, reduce the tensions and then let's try to figure out how we get this uh, compromise and some diplomacy in so that we don't have a devastation. And Jake, I'm worried because, uh, as King Abdullah said, a lot of this has to be done before Ramadan. Because if not, it could yeah. be catastrophic. Democratic Congressman uh, Gregory Meeks, a ranking Democrat on House Foreign Affairs. I hear you have a vote there. Uh, thanks so much. My exclusive interview with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu will air this evening. You can see that conversation in its entirety at 9 p.m. Eastern, only here on CNN. CNN is also live in Ukraine, near the front lines of some of the fiercest fighting yet. What Ukrainian troops are telling us about their desperate attempt to hold the city of Bakhmut. Plus, sources tell CNN of yet another search for classified documents. We're now learning the FBI went into Biden's D.C. think tank office. Stay with us. We're back with our world lead in Ukraine. Russian troops are turning the key eastern city of Bakhmut into, quote, total ruin, according to the region's top military official, as Ukraine claims its forces killed nearly 300 Russian troops there in just the last 24 hours. CNN's Fred Plykin was just outside Bakhmut this morning. And Fred, you spoke with Ukrainian troops. Are they starting to feel pessimistic about the grinding ground fight there? Well, they certainly say it's a really difficult fight. But, you know, one of the things they also say, Jake, is that they're really surprised, actually, as how well they are still able to hold on, even though the Russians are gaining some ground. Just looking at all the numbers that the Ukrainians are facing. Now, of course, one of the main adversaries that the Ukrainians have there, Jake, is the Russian private military company called Wagner. And they use some really brutal tactics, just essentially sending waves of people at some of these Ukrainian positions, often people that the Wagner group recruited from jail. So these are convicts that they essentially just send to try and storm Ukrainian positions. And we spoke to a Ukrainian soldier who said he was in his position with about 20 other guys from his unit, and they got attacked by 200 people from Wagner. They say they fought for about 10 hours, and he says that he believes that they either killed or wounded about 140 of those Wagner stormtroopers, essentially, until they themselves had to retreat. So that's the way that the Ukrainians on that front line are losing some position and are losing some ground. There's a lot of Russians who apparently die and are wounded in that whole process. So certainly very bloody, those uh, small victories that the Russians might be having there. One of the things that the Ukrainians say, though, that's really difficult for them as well, though, Jake, is that right now they say it's not only Wagner that they're fighting against anymore down there in Bakhmut. They say that increasingly the regular Russian military, also Russian paratroopers, are becoming involved, obviously making it even more difficult. However, the Ukrainians also say that they are not going to give an inch of their territory without a fight, Jake. And Fred, uh, Wagner boss Yevgeny Prigozhin responded directly to CNN's reporting on accusations of abuse in their uh, ranks, accusations from a former Wagner uh, mercenary. Uh, What did Prigozhin have to say? 
Yeah, well, there were several things. First of all, it's quite remarkable that he responded at all. This was on his Telegram channel, so via social media. Well, first of all, he said that he wouldn't respond at all to CNN and talk about his military tactics because he saw us as enemy media and felt that it would be sort of like responding directly to the CIA. He then also said that he believes that his unit was an exemplary military organization, that there were no crimes that were committed. One of the other things that he also did, Jake, is he actually called on Americans to also join Wagner if they wanted to and said it was a completely legal organization. Certainly some, some pretty interesting rhetoric coming there from Yevgeny Prigozhin, who certainly isn't shy to use some pretty strong words himself, Jake. All right, Fred Pleitkin in eastern Ukraine, thanks so much. Coming up, the plans announced today from embattled Republican Congressman George Santos in an effort to become less of a distraction. Stay with us. And our politics lead sources tell CNN that the FBI searched President Biden's former office at a Washington, D.C. think tank in November after classified documents were first discovered there. CNN's Paula Reed is following this for us. And Paula, this search has not previously been disclosed by the White House or by Biden's personal attorneys. We knew they found the documents, but we didn't know they searched for them. Why are we only learning about this now? That is the question, Jake, because both the president's attorneys and the attorney general have had the opportunity to previously disclose this. Now, the attorney general, the Justice Department, they don't typically talk about specific investigative steps that they have taken in cases, but this isn't your usual case. And the attorney general, of course, held a press conference where he announced the appointment of a special counsel. And he also took an unusual step of laying out a timeline of things that had occurred in the course of this investigation. And one of them, he notes that on November 9th, the FBI began an assessment to determine whether any classified information had been mishandled. Well, Jake, we have learned from our sources that assessment included the FBI going with the consent and permission of the president's attorneys to the former office. But we've also learned from our colleague Jamie Gangel that by the time the FBI got to the office, all the relevant materials had been removed, sent to the archives, so they were likely just checking to make sure nothing was left. We've also heard from previous Justice Department officials who've told us, look, this is all standard operating procedure. But, Jake, this is not a standard case. This has to do with the president of the United States and a Justice Department that is trying to prove to the American people that this case is being handled fairly and like the one into the former president. So this whole incident, it just raises a lot of questions about just how transparent the White House and the president's attorneys are really being here. All right. Paula Reed, thanks so much. House Republican leaders are working to lock down enough votes to make good on Speaker McCarthy's pre-election vow to remove Democratic Congresswoman Ilhan Omar from Minnesota from the Foreign Affairs Committee over past anti-Israel comments she has made using anti-Semitic tropes. Three Republicans have already said they are not in favor of the move. Republican leadership can only afford to lose four Republicans if everyone else is in attendance. CNN's Manu Raju is following this live from uh, Capitol Hill, Manu. We should note that Congresswoman Omar has apologized for at least one of those comments. Some Republicans have suggested a, a compromise resolution uh, that would allow her, Omar, uh, and any other future evictees from committees to, to appeal to the House Ethics Committee if ousted. Uh, where does that compromise stand? Yeah, that looks to have worked to flip at least one of those no votes. You mentioned three of those no votes, so that included Victoria Sparks of Indiana, the Republican, saying in a statement that she plans to support this resolution now that they're making this change to deal with these due process concerns, essentially allowing Omar to appeal 
keep getting kicked off the committee to the House Ethics Committee. So that means that only two Republicans who are voting no at the moment. I just talked to Congressman Matt Gates. He had wavered on this issue as well. He just walked out of Speaker McCarthy's office, McCarthy lobbying Gates to back this measure. Gates telling me that he is reviewing this. He is taking it seriously in the, in the aftermath of the inclusion of this language. He may back it as well. Others, including Tony Gonzalez of Texas, told me that he is still thinking about backing this measure. Now, the Republican leadership is still confident they will get the votes, but that may have to wait, Jake, until next week because some members are absent. They're not going to be here this week. And so they may not have the votes set this week, but they expect to have one as soon as next week, Jake. And my um, embattled Congressman George Santos, the Republican who has lied about pretty much every single thing on his resume, we're, we're told now that he's not going to sit on committees, at least right now. Tell us more about that. Yeah, he announced it last this morning after meeting with Speaker McCarthy last night, saying that he would step aside from the Small Business Committee and the House Science Committee, even after he was awarded those spots from Speaker McCarthy and McCarthy's allies, but saying that because of these investigations that are swirling, that he would step aside until his name is clear. Now, there is still support within the Republican leadership for him maintaining his seat in Congress. Kevin McCarthy has not called on him to resign, saying it's up to voters in his district. And I asked New York Republican Elise Stefanik, a member of the Republican leadership, someone who raised money for George Santos, someone who campaigned for him, whether she regretted doing so now in light of the revelations of all these fabrications about his past. Like all of my colleagues, uh, particularly in New York State, uh, I supported George Santos as the nominee, and the people of his district voted to elect him. Now, we just uh, got out of conference, and George has voluntarily removed himself uh, from committees as he goes through this process, but ultimately, voters decide. Did he resign? Do you think he should resign? Again, this process is going to play itself out. So I asked her there, does she think that he should resign? And Stefanik said, not going that far, saying it's up to the, essentially the voters there. And that is the position of the Republican leadership on down. And Jake, a poll today coming out saying that a wide, vast majority of voters in his district, Republicans and Democrats, believe that Santos should resign. But again today, Santos defined, saying that he will not step aside from his seat in Congress, even though he did decide to step aside, at least temporarily, from his committees in the House. All right, Manu Raju, thank you so much. We're going to squeeze in a quick break. We'll be right back with more discussion of all of this with my political panel. We're back with our politics lead and battled Republican Congressman George Santos, who has lied about nearly every single thing on his resume, is now speaking out after announcing he will temporarily not serve on committees. He just gave an interview to the MAGA-friendly network OAN. Take a look. And I've learned my lesson, and you can guarantee, I can guarantee you that from now on, anything and everything is always going to be above board. It's largely always been above board. I'm just going to go the extra step now to double-check, cross-reference everything. Let's discuss with CNN anchor and correspondent Abby Phillip, along with Washington bureau chief for the Boston Globe and CNN political analyst Jackie Kucinich. I'm sorry, I'm laughing, Abby, but We're all the idea is like now this is just. Here. <laughs> well, I'm just like, oh, it's just a matter. I'm going to double check everything, dude. You lied about <laughs> your being a hol- your grandparents being Holocaust survivors. You lied about your name. You've lied about your businesses. This isn't like about like, oh, I accidentally misspoke about what year I graduated. It's, it's, well, but I guess that's the era we're in. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't even, <laughs> I don't, I don't even know what more there is to say about all of this. I mean, I, it was notable to me that he had a piece of paper in his lap, maybe notes on what he should say about telling the truth, because at this point. Um, it's really hard to know what he has said about himself, what he has represented about himself that is actually the truth. And uh, this interview was, as you noted, with a conservative outlet, didn't cover the vast majority of issues related to George Santos. But it's telling to me that he felt like he had to do it. He's trying to rehabilitate his image, but it just simply does not undo the straight up lies that he's been telling for so long. Although uh, we should note, uh, Jackie, that he does seem to be like kind of leaning into this idea where, you know, he's just a another MAGA victim of the biased media and the deep state and blah, blah, blah. But like that, that's not he, I, I, I never even heard of this guy. No, nobody's out to get him. Like it turned out he has lied about nearly every single thing about him. I mean, I would like to know what member of the media told him to lie about his mother dying in 9-11 when she wasn't even in the country, according to various reports. Um, But listen, he is trying to move past this. He said in his statement today he was trying not to be a distraction for the House Republican Party. I think that probably is not going to come true, given the outstanding investigations that are currently um, working through the process. Um, As uh, Elise Stefanik said, shouldn't mention the investigations. Of course. Um, but, you know, some of these, he, yes, all of the lies that we've, we've talked about are, um, you know, they, they are what they are. But I think um, some of his uh, dubious recording, reporting when it comes to his um, FEC reports are really going to uh, turn out to be um, truly the most problematic um, in terms of what kind of illegal um, situations he might be in going forward. I think it was Leslie Jones who said, do you know how much you have to lie to be known as the lying congressman? But but in any case, it wasn't just late night hosts and comedians having uh, making hay out of it. Democrats obviously are. Take a listen to the chair of the House Democratic Caucus, uh, Pete Aguilar. I'm just struck by the the chaos, confusion, um, dysfunction. Uh, of the Republican conference. They defended putting him on committees and now they're announcing that he's not going to serve on a committee. So I just don't, I don't understand what the, the play of the day is. I mean, to be honest, it's a pretty reasonable question, um, Abby. What is the play here for Republicans? Well, as it relates to George Santos and these committees, I think that uh, Republican leadership, in particular Speaker McCarthy, realized that it was kind of a problem to allow him to be on committees, given that he's fabricated virtually everything that he's said publicly about his life, while also trying to kick off other Democrats from committees. It just does not work, especially considering, as Jackie pointed out, there are real, legitimate and very serious questions about the, the finances behind both his personal um, you know, representations on these financial documents that were submitted to the government, but also about how he funded his own campaign. Right. Those are serious issues. And, and I think there's an awareness here that it could totally blow up in the faces of Republican leadership if they just give it a pass for now. Uh, and the, the simplest solution would be for him to make himself less of a problem, at least for now, although I don't really think that it's going to end up in uh, McCarthy or anyone else in the House of Representatives uh, kicking him out of that body. I think they need that seat a little too much. And and Jackie, uh, House uh, leadership, uh, Republican House leadership is pushing hard to oust Democratic Congresswoman 
Ilhan Omar of Minnesota from the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Um, but some Republicans, uh, including MAGA firebrand Matt Gates, uh, are expressing concern about such a move. Take a look. I view the Schiff and Swalwell matter somewhat differently than I view the Ilhan Omar matter. The reason I think a lot of Republicans want to kick Ilhan Omar off of the Foreign Affairs Committee is because they don't like what she has to say. It's one thing to do dangerous things to the country with intelligence. It's quite another to say, I don't like your viewpoint, and thus I want to remove you. Now, to be clear, the the reasons that they're giving the House Republicans for kicking uh, Ilhan Omar from the committee have to do with anti-Israel things that she said that employed um, anti-Semitic tropes, at least one of which she apologized for. It's not the criticism of Israel. There are plenty of members of Congress who are critical of Israel. Um, but, But Congressman Gates tells CNN he just met with Speaker McCarthy over this issue, and he's pleased with the compromise resolution that would allow her to appeal this to the House Ethics Committee. He wants to see the final language. How do you think this is going to play out? You know, the thing that strikes me about this, uh, Jake and Abby, is the amount of political capital that House leadership is expending on this. After all the political capital they expended on getting to, getting McCarthy's speakership at all. We're not even to, to the part where they're actually trying to legislate. And this just shows how much power each of those remem- members of Congress have on the Republican side to extract whatever they want from Kevin McCarthy. Um, and when and when things are actually on the line, when things are actually, you know, uh, um, affect how the country does its business, um, this is this does not bode well for Kevin McCarthy, um, given, you know, just how much how much effort they've had to put uh, um, put in these things that are frankly party loyalty votes. And Abby, uh, Congresswoman uh, Ilhan Omar is defending herself amid this push to oust her, but she she made some rather baffling comments uh, to Dana Bash on State of the Union um, when talking uh, about uh, a tweet she sent when she said uh, support for Israel was all about the Benjamins um, in 2019. Take a look. So when you apologized uh, for the all about the Benjamins <clears throat> comment, you said anti-Semitism is real. And I'm grateful for Jewish allies and colleagues who are educating me on the painful history of anti-Semitic tropes. What did you learn? A lot. I wasn't aware um, of, of the fact that there are tropes about Jews and money. Um, that has been a very enlightening uh, part of, of this journey. I don't want to read too much in, into Adam Schiff's face there, but, but uh, I think there are probably a lot of House Democrats that find it difficult to believe that she'd never heard that there were anti-Semitic tropes about Jews uh, and money. Do you think in some ways, Abby, um, Congresswoman Omar might actually be hurting her cause here. Yeah, I mean, definitely uh, Congressman Schiff's face kind of spoke volumes there. But but yeah, no, it's not helpful to say that you'd never heard of a pretty well-known trope uh, about Jewish people. And and so at this point, I mean, I think that it, it's not necessarily helpful for a Congresswoman Omar to be out there uh, dealing with this issue. In some ways, uh, as Jackie pointed out, this is a problem that Republicans internally are wrangling about, and it's not clear that McCarthy even has the votes to do it. So, you know, from the Democrats' perspective, it's probably best to let them fight it out. But comments like that certainly don't help. And, it, and But I would say to, to Matt Gaetz's uh, to, to Matt Gates's point, I think there there is some legitimate concern about where exactly the line here is when it comes to punishing members of Congress for things that they say, and that's still being worked out. 
Yeah, and I also think there's a larger conversation to be had about apologies and, you know, allowing people to grow, um, whether they're Democrats, Republicans, or not affiliated at all. Abby Phillip and Jackie Kucinich, thanks so much. Now to our national lead and an ice storm causing big problems on highways across several states. Take a look. Oh, brutal. Crashes and vehicles caught in dangerous slides. The scene playing out across the southern United States today from Texas to Tennessee. Let's bring in Jennifer Gray in the CNN Weather Center. Jennifer, this ice storm impacts several major cities uh, and the danger, the threat of it is not over. You're right. It's far from over. We're going to see another wave of this tomorrow. This isn't going to end uh, until Thursday morning, most likely. And it is far reaching. You're right. We're talking about uh, South Texas all the way over to portions of Tennessee, the Ohio Valley, and just a huge area of nothing but ice. Freezing rain is the worst case scenario when you're talking about winter precipitation because it doesn't look like much. You're not seeing snow piled high, but you just slide. There's no way you can drive when ice is coating the road, especially Especially when you're getting up to half an inch of ice for some of these places across central Texas, Arkansas. Look at all the reports of ice and sleet that have been reported from Texas to the Ohio Valley. We're talking about quarter of an inch up to half an inch of ice potentially across these areas. And here's the radar here. We are going to get a little bit of a break, but more is to come by the time we get into tomorrow. We still have those winter alerts up. And if we go forward in time, you can see uh, this is Wednesday morning. We have a another huge batch of uh, possibly sleet and freezing rain that's going to come for Texas, Oklahoma, as well as Arkansas. And so it's just going to be compounded on what has already fallen, Jake. So we could see more uh, accidents as well as power outages tomorrow. Jennifer Gray, thanks so much. Also in our national lead today, a little over an hour ago, prosecutors in New Mexico filed formal Charges against Hollywood star Alec Baldwin and the armorer for the movie Rust. Cinematographer Helena Hutchins was killed in October 2021 by a live round of ammunition fired from a prop gun that Baldwin was holding. The armorer, who was responsible for handling all prop weapons on the set, was also charged. CNN's Josh Campbell has been going through the newly filed court documents. Josh, we we knew both would face involuntary manslaughter charges. That was announced already. What, What else did the documents reveal? Well, these are very serious charges, Jake, involuntary manslaughter, and we're told that they could carry up to five years in prison for both Alec Baldwin as well as Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, who was the armor on the set, should they be convicted. And in these court records, which we've been going through, the prosecutor really lays out, in her view, a pattern of unsafe practices that were occurring on the set before that fatal shot was fired in October of 2021. I'll read you one passage in which the prosecutor lays the blame squarely with Alec Baldwin. She says that a training session for at least an hour or more in length was scheduled, but the actual training consisted of only approximately 30 minutes, as according to the armorer, Baldwin was distracted and talking on his cell phone to his family during the training. So the prosecutor here not just focusing on that fatal shot, but what occurred before then, saying that Baldwin was allegedly not taking safety seriously. They also mentioned that uh, per industry standards, actors are supposed to do safety checks with the staff on the set, saying that that did not properly occur in this case. And in really laying out her case, this is a really damning scale 
scathing summation here. I'll read you. The prosecutor says that by not receiving the required firearm uh, training, deviating from the required duties of checking the firearm with the armor, not dealing with safety complaints on the set, not making sure the protocol of safety meetings was occurring, putting his finger on the trigger of a real gun and the overall handling of the firearm in a negligent manner, Baldwin acted with willful disregard of the safety of others. Now, it's important to note that attorneys for both Alec Baldwin as well as the set armorers have claimed that their clients are innocent. They expect to be exonerated here. Finally, as far as what happens next, I talked to the DA earlier this month. She said that there will be no arrests in this case. Uh, Baldwin and the armorer will receive what's called a summons. They will have to appear in New Mexico, either physically, possibly by a, uh, via video conference, uh, and then they will enter their not guilty pleas, and then we'll see where this case goes. If the prosecutors can actually make that case, that they are negligent here for the death of cinematographer Helena Hutchins, Jake. All right, Josh Campbell, thanks so much. Coming up, an alarming new study showing a possible link between ultra-processed foods and cancer, particularly in women. We'll have the specifics on this one next. In our health lead now, a new study shows eating ultra-processed foods might be linked to an increase of cancer, especially for women. Let's bring in CNN's Dr. Tara Nurula. Uh, Dr. Nurula, which foods are considered ultra-processed, and how harmful exactly are they? Well, it's a lot of the foods that you and I and our kids like to eat, Jake. This is things like breakfast cereals, snacks, um, some processed meats, frozen pizza, things that are highly palatable, marketed really aggressively, easy to heat, and easy to reheat. The issue is that a lot of these foods are really low in nutritional value. They're chock full of fat, sugar, and salt. Um, and, you know, we have seen an association with these foods and type 2 diabetes and obesity, but was really a question mark is around cancer. And we know that uh, cancer is responsible for one in six deaths worldwide. In fact, 50% of it is preventable. And so when you look at food as being a potentially modifiable risk factor, this is important. So this study really looked at 200,000 British adults. They were average age of about 58. They had them take a food questionnaire and they followed them for about 10 years. And they found that for every 10% increase in ultra-processed food content in their diet, they saw an increased incidence of overall cancer by about 2%, increase in developing ovarian cancer by about 19%. And then when they looked at the death risk, Jake, there was a 6% increased risk of dying from any cancer, about a 30% increased risk of dying from ovarian cancer. Um, So these numbers sound alarming, but I think it's important to always point out some of the caveats to these studies uh, so that people don't get frightened. And there are some limitations. So tell me what the limitations are to this study and and how ultra-processed foods might actually cause cancer or or not. It's always difficult with these diet studies to really prove cause and effect, and that's not the type of study this was. It's an association study. So you can't always take out all the other factors that might have contributed, like did people who have bad lifestyles in general also eat ultra-processed food, and it was the bad lifestyle that was causing this. Also, this was predominantly a white population. There's always issues around food questionnaires and whether they were filled out appropriately. But there's a potential mechanism there when you look at, obviously, poor nutritional value. We know that obesity is a risk factor for certain types of cancers. And then there are question marks around food additives and things that happen during processing and packaging of food and whether that might contribute to cancer risk. Let's turn to a different topic. There's new data from the CDC showing that the U.S. saw a slight increase in the number of births in 2021. Uh, How significant was this uh, baby bump? 
Yes, the baby bump. Well, it was about 50,000 increased births from 2021 compared to 2020. Um, so it's a small increase, uh, but people think there may be some factors you know, that contributed. For example, people were home more, maybe more financially stable, uh, less commuting, so maybe more prone to having babies. All right, Dr. Tara Narula, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, more of my exclusive interview with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, including his response when I asked him if he would serve, as some have suggested, is possible as a mediator to stop Russia's brutal assault on Ukraine. That's coming up in the Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer. And of course, you can see my entire interview with Netanyahu tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. We'll be back right after this quick break. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.